With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Conversational. I am here today with a guy who I have actually known a really long time, and I'm excited to bring him here because he's one of the reasons that my podcast is what it is today, and I'll share a little bit more about what I mean about that. But without further ado, I have Mr. Brad Barons with me. Hi, Julie. Hello, Brad. So let me tell you about Brad, outside of the little bit of, you know, he and I are friends. He has been everywhere in his career. His career is actually fascinating. Um, he, he talks about it being uh, storytelling is an organizing theme. So currently, he's this chief strategy officer at the USC Annenberg Center for the Digital Future and principal at Big Digital Idea Consulting, which is a boutique advisory firm. He also serves on the boards of the Ascendant Network, Glasswing Ventures, Advantes Media, Media, and more. He has a long tenure as the global chief content officer for DMG Events Digital Portfolio. For those of you who are like, what is that? If you've ever been to an ad tech or an iMedia conference in the marketing world, those are that's part of that. He was the digital editor at internet service provider Earthlink. And fascinatingly enough, he spent several years as a Hollywood story analyst at studios, agencies, and production houses like DreamWorks, New Regency, CAA, and Mirage. But even more interestingly, he started his career as an award-winning teacher of Shakespeare and writing at UC Berkeley. And, of course, as all good Shakespearean and people who write and read would do, he wrote his own science fiction book called Red Cross, which I didn't actually even know, and I've known you forever. So anyway, that is that is probably a good intro for um, a little bit of the, the background about you. But I was just uh, talking with Brad and just reminiscing about how we met, and Brad was sharing that it was actually on a phone call, and I always think about us meeting together at one of the, like in person at one of the iMedia events. But it was a phone call about a marketing event, so so that helped. And the, it's really it's it's uh, somewhat unnerving to hear you describe me that way because I sound profoundly schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's I think it's not schizophrenic. I think it makes you sound. First of all, brilliant. I always introduce you as one of the smartest people I know, Aww. certainly in the digital marketing arena. It's the, my go-to for sure. Well, thank you. But but secondarily, I the roots of it, and I would love to, I, I of course, now I want to go back into like childhood. How did you get into like Shakespeare and writing? And then how did that morph into all this sort of, you know, profound digital thought leadership kind of thing? It's a wonderful question. I wish that there was like a logical answer to it. Uh, you know, Shakespeare happened to me around the tenth grade, and and I had a highly unusual response to it, which was, "We're reading Romeo and Juliet." Uh, an incredibly brilliant teacher named Phil Holmes uh, was my English teacher, and where most of my compatriots, I went to an all boys school, so Romeo and Juliet with no Juliets in the room is, is a little bit vexing, but. Uh, there I am, and, and I'm reading this. And at the same time, I had a spear-carrying role in a production of Twelfth Night at, at the, one of the other local schools. 
And I just loved it. I and where just, was this? Where were you? I grew up in Los Angeles. Oh, no, and I, okay. I went That's to a, 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 a private school called, at the time it was called the Harvard School. It's now called Harvard Westlake. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a, a recovering military academy. Uh, thank heavens I was there after. Otherwise, I would have been you know, drummed out very quickly, I'm sure. And it was, yeah, that was the Shakespeare thing, that, that moment in 10th grade where I'm like, holy moly, this stuff is really interesting. And I was blessed that uh, a friend of mine who is, has much more stick-to-itiveness than I do, a guy named Matt Henderson, who to this day is a Shakespearean actor, and he and I... We just we were all in. We were watching movies. We're going to theater, and so that was the beginning. And then it became my passion as an undergraduate at Brown, and then I went to graduate school. I got a doctorate in English at UC Berkeley, where I, I really straddled. I, I'm often between categories uh, in my life, and in that case, I was sort of half a stage historian, thinking really hard about how these things were you know, functional pieces of theater uh, and half doing literary studies. And so when you graduated, so did you do, so first of all, for you were at UC Berkeley, you got your master's and your doctorate there? But I skipped the master's entirely. I you went, went right on to your doctorate. Well, yeah, so doctorate okay, at Berkeley. So you went right to doctorate. And then what did you, or I guess, what were you hoping to do when you graduated and what did you actually do? <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, you, you, you've narrowed in on the first holy shit moment. Uh, uh, so I you know, go to graduate school uh, to get a doctorate. It's like going to law school. You do it in order to become a lawyer. You go to graduate school in English in order to become a scholar or a professor. I wanted nothing more than to teach kids about Shakespeare for the rest of my life. And I didn't really care where I did it. You know, that was you're, you're in life. You're you're a who, you're a what, or you're a where. Uh, you know, you you can't you can only go through one door at, at a time, and you have to pick your door, and your door is going to be in one of those flavors. At that time. Uh, I was a what? You know, I wanted to teach Shakespeare. And and, then I had a lot to say. I wrote articles. I gave talks all over the world. I actually, one of the sort of uh, clear indications of where I would wind up was that I started hand-building websites for my students. And... To say, here are the course materials. Here's the syllabus. Here's- how did you learn how to? How did you like go from like understanding Shakespeare to learning how to? HTML is I- not complicated. No, but but I mean, it just seems. So I guess it's a whole like clearly nerd thing that I missed out on because <laughs> I I feel totally inept, right? I mean, and I actually studied engineering, so it was well, I had to learn Fortran, and I still didn't. <laughs> At, at, at that time, the bar was so low that it, it it was really easy to do, and you know the standards were not not that high. And so a friend of mine was expert on it. He handed me a a mimeographed or xeroxed like how to do HTML in ten minutes thing, which I did. I created websites for my students, and I created. And this was a really interesting moment, which is I created. Uh, an introduction to Shakespearean stage history that I put on the web and that became something that people were using as a textbook all over the world. You know, people in South Africa would, you know, professors would say, is it okay if I use this in my class? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's dude, I published it on the web. It's there for free. And, and it was this extraordinary kind of transformative moment. 
so that's what I wanted to do, was I wanted to keep on doing that and, and teach Shakespeare. Uh, at the time, uh, I, there was a certain flaw in my logic, which was there was a 90% unemployment rate in my chosen field. People <laughs> would go through endless years in graduate school, and then there would be no jobs. Mm-hmm. And they were saying it'd be a four- or five-year job search. Wow. Because in the humanities, you really get one shot a year at the Modern Language Association conference. And, and so... That was uh, bad enough. It was also a political moment in which really the last thing that anyone needed in an English department anywhere in this country was another Jewish guy teaching Shakespeare. Like they were, were, so when, what, like what was the time frame like, you know, when you were saying? This is late 90s. Late 90s. Okay, so we were near like the dot-com bubble? We were, the. I would say the, the bubble was starting it. to inflate. Mm-hmm. You know, the dot-pocalypse came mm-hmm. soon thereafter. And yeah, so that's about what yeah. this was. Yeah. So... When you were saying that was your your holy shit moment, and just, by the way, commercial for everybody here. Yes. When I talk about the holy shit moments and created this Hoshimo thing, you know, it was Brad's suggestion, actually, to have a signature question. And we talked about the <laughs> So, again, I'm giving full credit to, to you as a part of uh, what we do here because it's, it's been fascinating had, to hear people's holy shit moments, frankly. And there's a lot of them. I just had the idea. You're, you're the one who's been executing on that. Um, the holy shit moment was um, uh, I was... Uh, one of two finalists for a teacher forever tenure track job teaching Shakespeare uh, at the University of Wyoming hmm. at Laramie. And I went, I flew on what they call the vomit comet from uh, from Denver <laughs> to Laramie, which was one of the most terrifying. Uh, ex- Is it those ex- little jets that go over the mountains and, and like, you know, every air yeah, bubble. Right, right. Oh, yeah. I, that's why they call it the vomit comet. Oh, yeah. And and I spent a sort of glorious two or three days there, gave talks, met the students, met the faculty. And and there was one other guy uh, and it was between the two of us. And I didn't get it. Uh, and I didn't get it for the very you know logical reason, which was that he was already finished with his Ph.D. dissertation and I was still writing mine. And so they're like, well, he's going to we want him. Uh and I became very depressed. Uh, I got, I went into, I mean, I'm, I, I wasn't institutionalized, but I mean, I was in a real funk for weeks. Because, uh, you know, you shoot your wad and that's it for a year, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's it. You're no more at bats. And so, uh, but it was several weeks later that I, I kind of, kind of like sat up and I thought, wait, I'm catatonic. <laughs> about a $30,000 a year job in Laramie, Wyoming, where, you know, good luck finding a Starbucks, you know, <laughs> right. uh, or, or anything. And that was that moment where I thought, oh, there's something wrong here, right? There's a flaw in my logic. But you were pretty young. Yeah, I, mean, I was not even 30. Yeah. So, but I'd been doing... I'd been doing that sort of my entire professional life at that point had been teaching, teaching writing, teaching literature, researching, being a research assistant, all with this sort of sense, okay, this is this is my my audition piece. And then when you blow the audition, you know, uh, so that, you know, uh, another way of uh, of thinking about a holy shit moment is a failure. Yeah. And this was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, well, we've all, I mean, clearly, right? Like from one, from, I feel you we've on all that. Had it. I feel you on that one. Yeah. The, but I, I do think that's something really powerful in the, 
And when we say you were like, you know, late 20s, I think that age is a really challenging age because you have sort of, you know, for right or wrong, you kind of committed. Most people by the end of their 20s have kind of committed to a path, whether they love it or hate it. They've sort of been like, well, I've dabbled. Now I got to, like, you know, focus in. And when your plan goes awry, that I understand the devastation and the, the depression. So what did you, how did you work your way out of it? Well, there was, there were a lot of, it was it was life is always complicated and i'm i'm talking about one aspect of it uh one thing i decided was okay i'm going to give this one more try and so but it, while i'm giving it one more try i'm going to start thinking about other things and so i uh, wound up going back on that job market a year later i was once again and actually this one was even funnier which was this was at middlebury college where this is where i learned that uh when given a choice between people's security and their values, most people will choose their security hmm. uh, because I went to Middlebury and they said, here's the thing, you know, what the faculty think of you is important, but we really take seriously what the students think of you. We want the students to be excited about whoever's going to get this job. And I said, okay. And I uh, was there and I, you know, at that time, Berkeley was the kind of den of something called new historicism, which mm. is, you know, uh, you know, literary analysis embedded in the context of whatever, the, whenever, whatever, whoever and whenever the thing originated. Middlebury was the complete opposite. Mm. They were textual purists. It's sort of like with the Supreme Court, you know, you have people who are very mm. focused on the text and people are very focused on precedent. Right. Middlebury people, uh, very pure. And so... Uh, one faculty member later on said, I came from a suspect department where they taught suspect books. This was the number one English department in the country. Uh, but the students loved me. Like I was their favorite of the candidates by orders of magnitude. Uh, but the faculty did not care. They were freaked out by Why me. do you think that – and I, look, I have heard you – A, I know you. I've heard you speak. And, in fact, Brad and I were spoke together at a conference yesterday. And what's fascinating about Brad is that he's super witty. And so I have to imagine that your witticism was a hit, assuming that you had developed that skill then I, with I, the kids. I, I was funny by then. I wasn't funny as a kid. Uh, I, um, I actually – don't think that I, I charmed my way into their good graces. Uh, what really happened there was I was the first person talking about Shakespeare as anything other than a poem mm. and talking about the plays as ways that meaning gets made in the minds of the playgoers. Mm -hmm. and, and this was a revelation to them. I'm funny on stage quite deliberately because you can't unlaugh at a joke. And if I've made you laugh about something as opposed to being stupid. I mean, I can drop my pants on stage the way anyone else can and everyone will get a big laugh, but that's not about <laughs> the argument. Right. Uh, if I make a joke about the content of technology trends, of you know where Uber is going, about the impact of 5G on sort of life as we know it, and people laugh now, then I've persuaded them of something. And it's so, probably stickier too, the more memorable. The, the, because if, because there was an emotional attachment to it, you made them laugh. Right, right. Laughter is almost as good as crying, uh, but I but making people cry at an industry conference, you don't get invited back. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. Not the one. So okay, so so 
that's kind of how you rolled out. But where where in this path were you like advising Hollywood on oh, stories? Oh gosh, so that uh, that was different. That was after that. So when I started looking around for the next thing, I, I just started talking to people. And uh, uh, one friend of mine said, you know, you really should think about uh, Hollywood. You know, you're, you've got all this expertise in, in storytelling, in drama. Uh, I happen to have a friend uh, who is, you know, working at a certain place. And why don't you go meet with him? Uh, he, like you, actually there was this uh, sort of cadre of people who were re- refugees from English departments who were working in Hollywood. And uh, there's a gentleman named Alex Siskin. He's... he's uh, huh. Still a producer today, uh, and I met Alex, and Alex introduced me to another guy who was a refugee from an English department named Greg. Greg introduced me to another guy who was a refugee from an English department named Scott. Scott's a big time Hollywood executive these days, um, and I wound up through all of these different connections, sitting in front of a, a wonderful, brilliant woman named Andrea McCall, who is was the head of story for DreamWorks and mm-hmm. DreamWorks. That part of DreamWorks has kind of faded back into Amblin, which is Steven Spielberg's production company. I think she's still there. And she sat with me and I explained my, you know, what was going on and my career transition. And she said, well, clearly, you know, everything there is to know about story. So, uh, you know, why don't we give you a test? And I said, well, OK, what's the test? She said, well, I'll, I'll messenger. Everything was messengers back days. Right. Back then, there was not before, you know, email was pre- prevalent and before you could send attachments. I'll messenger some scripts and the analyses, and I'll include another one. And then, you know, take your time doing it, you know, do the analysis and get it back to me. And I said to her, and I, this is, I don't have the presence of mind to do smart things very often, but in this case I did. I, I said, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a very fair test, right? How often, how often do people, can people take their time with, with these analyses? And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if you were giving this script to one of your current analysts, when would you need the analysis? And she said, tomorrow morning. Mm. I said, okay, I'll have it to you tomorrow morning. And she looked at me like I was nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, that seems like that's the fair test. And so she said, <clears throat> okay. So she messengered uh, seven scripts, wow. six with the analysis, and one without. And it came to the house in the sort of evening time. And I read all six scripts, and I read all six analyses. And then I thought, okay. And then I did the seventh, and I got hired. Okay, so the question is, did that seventh be was made into a movie? No, it was not a very good script. Okay. Uh, so these scripts, so the way that it's called coverage in Hollywood, and there are an infinite supply of screenplays mm-hmm. by an infinite supply of screenwriters and a very, very limited amount of slots. And so uh, the average agent, manager, or executive gets dozens and dozens and dozens of pitches a week. They can't read them all. What they do is they send them out to an analyst who will read the thing, do a one-page anal- one page summary, here's what it's about, a one-page analysis, here's why I think it is or isn't a movie, uh, a basically a tweet, a log line, mm-hmm. and then a recommendation. Uh, cons- uh, recommend means I am putting my own life on the line for this story. Personal like reputation. You, absolutely. Like this, I only did one. And it was a, a brilliant novel by a man named Hector Tobar, who's a, a, a journalist uh, with the LA Times. Uh, everything else, you a consider or yeah. consider with reservations or no, thank no you. And 
And so there were very few considers. There were lots of considers with reservations. There were some things that were just so wacky that you almost wanted to consider it just because it was so nuts. Yeah. Uh, and then there were a lot of just no things. And so were any of those that you had reviewed ever made into a film? Lots of things that I reviewed were made into movies. I don't think I, – I can't necessarily go, oh, because of me that got no, made into a movie. But uh, – or. Things that I said, this is a terrible idea, did get made into a movie. <laughs> uh, so the movie Pay It Forward, yeah. which was a wonderful book and a wonderful idea and a terrible idea for a movie because it's basically it's hagiography. It's a saint's life. There's zero narrative tension mm-hmm. uh, and it did zero box office. Uh, and so I said, don't do it. The studio at the time, I think it might have been Mirage, the studio I was working for, uh, didn't do it. Someone else made Picked the up. terrible mistake of doing it. How oh, fun. So. Is there any of them that you worked on? I'm just curious. I'd like to be like, you know, oh, yeah, my friend Brad. He mm, Nothing. I mean, I remember I remember seeing, reading the script for Phone Booth, oh. uh, which at the time I'm like, oh, this is a Will Smith movie. And another studio then bought it, attached him to it, which was really weird. Wow. So I clearly I was tapping into something uh, in the air. Uh, but it wound up being made by somebody else uh, later on. Uh, okay, well, that's fun. I just, the whole Hollywood thing, I think, is fascinating. And so from there, how long were you doing that? I did that for a couple of years, but it was pretty itinerant work. And that's when the internet was really starting to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, it was swelling up, and I was like, I needed a job with, you know, benefits and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and you, did you had you met your wife by this point? Oh yeah, we were married. We've been married for it'll be twenty five years in June. So okay. we, we've been together since graduate school. We were married. We were I think we were we were living with my parents. We'd moved to L A. from Berkeley, and we were shopping for a house, uh, finishing our dissertations, and, and I was working in Hollywood. And I think we then had bought the house, and that's when I I sort of needed to make this move, and I wound up. I'd already been involved with one crazy startup in the the coverage business, which was a kind of collective where you know one analyst would would analyze a script and it would get syndicated, and that idea was so terrifying to agents and managers because instead of twenty five at bats they'd have one that they actually uh, took the founders of the company into a room and they said if you do not disband this company immediately you will all be blackballed from the entertainment industry in perpetuity. Wow! And they shut that one I bet down. They did. I bet they did. <laughs> the next day, they're yeah. like, come pick up your check. We're out of business. And I was like, well, okay. Okay, then. Uh, I then worked for a crazy dot-com that wanted to be YouTube when broadband penetration was at about 3% of mm-hmm. the population. So good idea way ahead of its way. time, like mm-hmm. early 2000 or so. And, and, and that was uh, another fascinating thing because I, I'm sitting here and I'm like, how are you going to make money? And they had this whole, you know, kind of patter that they would do, and it didn't make any sense to me. But I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a little Shakespearean. Like, what do I know? And then I would learn more about the company. Turned out, to no one's uh, greater surprise than that of my mother, I had practical skills in business. No, she was, she still can't believe it to this day. Uh, and, and so I, I'd learn more about the company, and they kept promoting me because, again, you know, like I was good at managing people, good at strategy. And, and I'd learn more and I'd think, this, this doesn't really make any sense at all. They were doing things like we were, we were teaching the, the pool, editorial pool, to kind of dive into the code 
find the URL for the stream, plug the stream URL into our database, which would then serve the video in our player, which we were going to then be surrounding with ads. Wow. Like it, it was larceny. And I said, like, isn't this stealing? And they're like, no, no, our lawyers at this prestigious firm say it's okay. I'm like, but but it's stealing. And they're like, no, no. And so the more I learned, the more my initial common sense sort of take on the thing was, was confirmed, uh, which is why I eventually started looking around. And that's how I wound up uh, working at Earthlink, which was the ISP just because I thought, wow, this place is crazy town. Like, there, there's no way this can last. Mm-hmm. And so that I, I wound up moving on. That was, but, and that's, that, by the way, um, I, I'm 51. And to this day, I still have trouble going, that makes no sense. Uh, and believing it. That's the glorious thing about uh, data, which is when you have data, you, you can actually go, hmm, this, let's disconfirm this. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm sort of one of the great uber skeptics. Yeah, I love, which is, I mean, look, we could go through your whole history, but I love I love what you're doing now, this thought leadership sort of in this digital space. But I know you had other holy shit moments sort of in the path that has led you to where you are today. And I think I think I think it would be interesting to hear about what happened. So I, I mentioned that you and I, well, we obviously met via phone call, but sure. but then we met oftentimes at you know the ad tech conferences the iMedia conferences you know certainly you were using kind of your innate instinctive skills that you had you know learned about as you were just explaining and sort of brought it to life sort of an education i mean for me it's a, again my my armchair psychology it's it makes a little bit of sense. I mean, the whole how did you go from Shakespeare to tech was a little bit of a, a leap for me. It's but still mysterious, mysterious <laughs> to me. But it worked because of storytelling, again, in the digital landscape, it's a digital storytelling mechanism. But then you, you know, you went into this, you know, to when you went to DMG, and I know you had a few other steps, you basically were trying to create story to educate and to teach the audience about new technologies, new applications of them. So that actually that now really makes sense to me. Right. No, it's not a big stretch to go from, you know, uh, explaining, uh, you know, uh, plays that were written in the 1590s yeah. to explaining, you know, early third millennial technology to marketers. I mean, it, it 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 is definitely weird, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. But if you I, I do, I think I know the kind of uh, Hoshimo that you're talking about, which is the one uh, that involves both of us, um, which was and I'm going to let you fill in the details. Sure. Uh, but you were. Uh, you were at that time a victim of what I uh, saw from afar to be and thought to be extraordinarily unfair uh, set of circumstances. And, uh, and and that was you were one of the moments when I realized that in addition to just sort of putting on a show uh, that the platform that I had been entrusted with, with iMedia, with AdTech, with all the other shows, uh, was also a platform where uh, I could push things. Uh, and I could push ideas that I could push, you know, right behavior. Uh, I could question things, um, and and so you had this particular, uh, mm-hmm. you know, misadventure. Serious, serious Hoshimo in my life. Yeah, and yeah, uh, you know, one that that is really unfair. Uh, and I said um, to the team, I said, at that time we were about to put on a show called Driving Interactive, which was about interactive automotive marketing 
which is not actually esoteric. It just has a long kind of, it takes a long time to get there. And given your history with automotive, I thought, well, this is a no-brainer, right? She really needs an at-bat at this moment. And I think the industry uh, needs to hear what she has to say. And it's perfect. And, and I reached out to you and you did it. And I, I don't know if it turned a corner for you or not, but I felt that it was really important to do it. And and there have been a few other moments like that um, where, where I could actually intervene in something um, and and it was good to to do so. Doing good, it, it it you know, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but it there were for me, and again, this is not about me today, about you, but it, there were a culmination of events that helped to put you back together. You know, I mean, when like certainly I had a major Hoshimo, and you know, you're down, and you know how we all feel with our Hoshimos if they're sort of a big negative. To be able to find those with that closed door, those open windows can sometimes be very difficult. And so I, my attitude was say yes, right? You just go out and say yes, just try new things. And so the opportunity to speak was very intimidating because you're, you know, at, at the conferences that you were running, you're talking ad tech and I mean, you've got some of the, you know, the executives in digital, you've got thought leaders, you've got startup, you have businesses, people who really know their shit to, you know, for, you know, for lack of a better way to express it. And you're going to speak and try to teach something. So it was, you know, for me to get up and to have confidence again and to, to speak what I knew I knew and just to have a platform to do it. And then to know that there were people out there to support you. So I, I, I love that about you. I mean, it speaks much Thank to you. who you are, which is in addition to sort of all the thought leadership and the great things that you do. You're also just such a wonderful human. I mean, you, you use your your power for good. I, I've been very lucky uh, in a couple of regards. One is one thing is, uh, I believe that if we can engage with other people in a more than transactional way, that that is a karmic investment in the universe. And it can be something as simple as I tend to introduce myself to people if I'm at a restaurant, particularly if someone is wearing a name tag. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's fair in life for, you know, Mary to come up and for me to know that Mary's name is Mary and Mary not to know that my name is Brad. It, it's just, it's not, it's a, an unequal distribution of power that's entirely without merit. Uh, some years ago, a man named Bernie Weinraub was the film critic of the New York Times and his kid and my kid went to school together. And Bernie, who's a wonderful guy, was married to Amy Pascal. And Amy, who's a wonderful person mm -hmm. as well, was the head of Columbia uh, Pictures. And she now has segued into a producing gig. She does all the Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. And when Bernie and Amy got together, all of a sudden he couldn't review a movie without people saying, well, he gave it that review because Amy put that in turnaround or he, you know, there was never, his critical judgment could never be taken seriously anymore. So he wound up leaving and he was working in television for a little while and didn't, didn't like that. Now he's a playwright. But he wrote this three-part, I don't feel bad about saying any of this because it's all in the New York Times. He wrote this three-part article sort of saying goodbye to Hollywood where he said, uh, you know, I'm leaving because you, you can't take me seriously anymore. And then he discovered that no one would return his phone call anymore, that people, you know, studio heads who had gotten back to him in 15 minutes when he was the film critic for The New York Times would not return a call at all. When I wound up leaving my role as the worldwide head of programming for ad tech and iMedia, I thought, well, that's it. Bye-bye to the industry. Um, 
no one's going to ever respond to me again. And so one of the most pleasant surprises of my life was that actually people are still interested in what I have to say. And uh, I'm still kind of surprised uh, to this day by it, but I, I believe that I've lived my adult life in this kind of non-transactional way, which is I, I'm interested in the person behind the speaking gig. I'm interested. I always would ask people like, well, what's a win for everybody? You know, like I, I didn't if someone's giving a talk, I'm like, all right, so here's what my audience needs. What do you need? Um, and I think uh, that that's a philosophy that I try to impart to other people because I think it makes the world a better place. And I think it's why people still answer when I call, which, again, is still a pleasant surprise. Well, and uh, truly, it's not on your resume, but it should be. You are one of the most amazing connectors. They oh, talk about you. people who are connectors and networkers. And, you know, I do my very best. But you, first of all, you've got like some sort of crazy, you know, Mind Rolodex. Just, it's called Link, it's called LinkedIn. It's really handy. No, it's no because I call you and you rattle them off. You're not researching it. What I mean, you're you've got one of those you know innate abilities, and I think I think that's why probably people call you because you are so good at at making everything better. And I know we haven't talked a bit about your you know your book and your books, but you know I I have been reading your papers or your, you know, your kind of your blogs. Oh, okay. That's really about the auto industry, which, of course, just because of my history, sure. I'm, I'm generally interested. But you've taken sort of that and some of that think tank thought leadership um, in making predictions of what's happening in the future. And I won't I won't, you know, make you to rattle out too many of them. But, you know, how are you? How, and, and I think you're are you writing another book? Did I'm you writing. Another, yes, I'm writing another book. And is this is this book another science fiction book or is it a is it something more? No, this is a business book. Business book. Okay, so, right. No, the the I, I'm actually beginning to noodle another uh, science fiction book, but those are they're very hard to talk about um, because they the more you talk about them, the less sense they make, and then you get discouraged. So I have to kind of. <laughs> we'll, I have to, that, have, that, well, don't do that then. We that, don't want to discourage. You. <laughs> that's early in the morning, just me before you know anybody except the dog wakes up. No, the 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 work I did on Shakespeare as an academic was about Shakespeare. Ultimately, it turned out to be about Shakespeare as a businessman. Mm-hmm. And and then, so I did, you know, between, depending on how you measure, 10 or 20 years in, in the Shakespeare biz. And then since around about, you know, 99, 2000, I've been in business and, and mostly in digital. And so I wound up over the years giving this talk about Shakespeare as a business genius all over the world. I've done it a couple times in this country. I've done it in Norway because we lived there for a year because my, my beautiful wife, Kathy, who is a professor of English also at Portland State. Also ridiculously smart. Yeah. Oh, yes. She's, she's, yeah. she's the reins of the operation. Uh, she got a Fulbright to uh, Bergen to, in Norway. And while we were there, I wound up getting involved with the TEDx and I wound up speaking about this. And then I did it in England. Uh, in fact, my old team at iMedia uh, UK called me and they said, you know, we just realized that we're doing an event on Shakespeare's birthday, which is also, as it happens, his death day, uh, and we we have nothing Shakespearean in our programming. And I said, uh, and and they said, you you did that that talk, right? And I said, yeah. So I wound up doing going to England. Uh, and actually, bringing one of my my old Shakespeare history buddies uh, to to come to the the event, um, which was also fun in lots of other ways. Uh, so the book is now about Shakespeare and innovation because I think that in business today, we tend to conflate and confuse innovation with technology. 
and that most chief innovation officers or innovation incubators in, in digital biz today are really about the gadget or platform of the week. They're about new technologies. They're not about innovation, which is frequently different. It's actually about arranging things you already have in different ways. It's about trying to layer experiences on top of each other in, in ways that will then yield different experiences. And so uh, because of the work that I did back then and the way that it's informed the things that I do today, I finally realized, oh, there's actually there's a tidy, nice little book about this. So that's what I'm working on. What? So when will this? Do you have a... Oh, I'm just working on so it. You so you just... So, when uh, it comes, it comes. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping as soon as possible. But, yeah. you know, think 2020 would be a stretch. But in the meantime, um, because in addition, as would be expected from your background, when you write these blogs, they're written in a highly entertaining and educational way, and they're short. So will you, will you share with the listeners your... Uh, oh, where to go? Yeah. Oh, sure. So the easiest way to, to track uh, track me down is just I'm, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my name is Brad Behrens. Uh, I've know I've seen enough of the platforms coming that I tend to get the that username early. So B R A D B E R E N S on Twitter, bradbarons.com. The the work I do with the Center for the Digital Future is at digitalcenter.org. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm one Google search away. You'll find entirely yeah. too much Brad Barons. Yeah, well, no, it's good, and I'll leave people with a bit of a tease as we close out because. Um, even if you're not a technophile or a market, like, this is just pure interesting, this this <laughs> kind of prediction of the future. I will leave you with the fact that Brad believes, is it, can I share the story about the Uber and Lyft, that Brad believes that Uber and Lyft... Oh, they're doomed. ...are the friendster in my space of the future. So not that ride sharing or ride, you know, right. hailing is... Ride doomed, hailing is forever. But at these two companies. Yeah. It, so I'm going to leave that tease. Oh, great. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I think because I think people should go because first of all, we I could never do it justice. And it would, meaning you'd like me to do it or we're going to let no, them no, go no, and I think, search it? I want it them and, to go find it. So and what's the, what's the website specifically they go to, to to read all your your blogs? Bradbarons.com. Just Bradbarons.com. Yeah, it's, it's all there. OK, so Good. this was so much fun. Thank, thank you, you for Julie. coming. And thank you for being part of the impetus and support for this podcast in general. I am so excited. You and you I've been very blessed that you've interviewed some of uh, our friends. And mm-hmm. so I've gotten to learn more about them than they've ever told me over, you know, beers at bars. So you, you, you're just opening people like they're tin cans. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully showing the, the inner blossom in them and not the, <laughs> not the guts, not the ugly. Right? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.